Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 4. We are working our way through this beautiful chapter. Some of you told me last week that this is your favorite chapter in the Bible, and this is one of the most well-known, most well-loved, sweetest, tenderest, glorious chapters in all of John, maybe in all of the Bible. As you're opening to John chapter 4, let me remind you that we are studying Galatians in the evening, and so we'll be here tonight at 6. We're in Galatians chapter 3, and if you haven't joined us for that and you want to jump in, come on, jump in. The water's warm. Uh, We'll catch you up on where we are. It's a very informal time, about an hour of just looking at God's Word and discussing it together for whoever shows up here in the sanctuary at 6 o'clock tonight. How does Jesus deal with people? Think about this scene that we're about to consider, continue looking at. And I think it answers this question. It gives us a wonderful picture of how God, who has become flesh, as we have heard read from us as Tyler was praying through the truth of Hebrews 2, just glorious to think about God becoming man. And how does this God-man deal with sinners like us? And this is so important for us to think about in this spirit that we live in, this age that we live in. We live in a harsh age. We, we live in an age where we are critical of each other, where we get online and we take sides, and it's, it's a very antagonistic age. So this is a beautiful story for us to think about. Now, we left off midway through, and I feel like we kind of got up from the table uh, before we asked mom if we could be excused, and so we, she's calling us back to the table, except it's not mom, it's dad, because it's the Lord. But anyway, we're coming back to the table midway through the meal, and we're going to pick up in verse 16. So let me pray, um, and then we'll, we'll get going. Lord, I pray that you'd help us just to think deeply, and that we would apply this passage honestly. And that you would help us worship you more, more truly as a result of this time together in your word. Help us, help me, Lord, to help these people. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verses 1 through 15, just by way of review, Jesus is, is walking. He's had this long journey. He has walked and he's come to this well in this place And he has come across this Samaritan woman. So Jesus has probably walked since very early in the morning, probably a very long walk. He's tired. It's the middle of the day. And this Samaritan woman, remember who the Samaritans were? They would have been outcasts. They were people who had their beginnings all the way back in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 16 and 17, where there's this story where Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, because of their rebellion, their nation is about to be split and divided and conquered by foreign captors. That happens, and, the, and, and many of God's people, the Jews, were taken away from the land. And in this region of Samaria, which was part of Israel, the, there were some Jews that were left, and these foreign kings brought in these foreign false God-worshiping people, and they intermingled with the remaining Jewish people there in this region of Samaria, and that gave rise to this group of people called the Samaritans, who 
were kind of like half brothers and sisters to the Jews. They were they're the result of this intermingling. And against, again, I, we say often whenever we see this in the Old Testament where God is against the intermingling of cultures and races, it's not in any way tied to any ethnicity, but it's because God in the time of the Old Testament is wanting to preserve the purity spiritually of Israel, and so he's not wanting them to intermarry with false people, at, at, with, with other peoples at certain times of their history, because he knows that they are so weak spiritually that they will take on these false gods. And that's exactly what happens, and it gives rise to this group of people called the Samaritans, who then are in this position of antagonism with Israel, with the, with the Jews, and that antagonism continues on throughout the Old Testament and is here in the first century. And so Jesus is, is engaging with a woman that a, that, a, that a Jew that would have wanted to, be, would wanted to be ceremoniously clean would have never interacted with. And he comes across this woman at this well in the middle of the day, which would have been unusual because this woman should have probably been with the other women early in the morning, fetching the water, or late at night when the sun wasn't so hot, but she's avoiding these women because we'll see about her past here in just a second. And there is this divine appointment between Jesus where he asks this woman for a drink. And he's using that, his fatigue, he's using his thirst as a kind of touch point to draw her into a conversation about her true need, which is that she needs to drink from the true fountain of faith in Jesus, the living water that only Jesus can give. And so that's where we left off last week. Jesus introduces this. He's moving from the physical to the spiritual. And now the conversation is about to take a strange and unexpected turn, just out of nowhere. It seems like Jesus has brought up this spiritual topic. This lady still doesn't quite know who Jesus is. And now Jesus is about to just take a left turn and ask her what would be a kind of, I don't know, an awkward and invasive question. So let's look at verse 16. She's just said to him, you know, this type of water that you're talking about, this living water, what are you talking about, Jesus? Of course, Jesus has transitioned to the spiritual need that we all have. She says in verse 15, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. She still doesn't understand. And then our text, verse 16, look at what Jesus says. I'll read verses 16 through 20. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Where did that come from? Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. All right, let's pause there and let's just kind of begin to unpack several truths that I want us to see in this passage. So again, the conversation, just, just note this. Note the, note the kind of awkwardness of the turn in this conversation. We might have expected Jesus to just continue talking about living water. I mean, he's brought up the point. He's got to the, to the issue of what her true need is. And so we would, might expect Jesus to just continue down that road. But he presses in to show her not just that she needs living water, even though she doesn't fully understand that, 
but why she needs this living water. And so he goes into the deepest part of her soul. Friends, this is just a lesson that the medicine of the gospel that Jesus is about to explain to this woman, it's not topical. It's not something we just kind of rub on the outside. It's invasive. It's something that has to go all the way down in. And so Jesus digs in and he says, go, go call your husband. And she says, well, actually she tells kind of a half truth. I don't, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, oh, you're, you're right. And then he tells her, in fact, the man that you're, how would he know this? This is Jesus in his divinity, just exercising knowledge about this woman's life. He's saying, you're right. In fact, the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And you've had five before him. And the woman instantly knows, like, okay, I, 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 you're obviously a prophet. And then look what she does in verse 20. It's getting a little bit sort of personal and so let's talk about some sort of theoretical, theological topic. Oh, well, what about worship? What about worship? Verse 20, she just sort of transitions away from Jesus pressing into the inside. And I think what's happening here in verse 20 is she's trying to divert. She's trying to distract. She's, she's trying to change the topic of the conversation to this, to this theological debate between the Samaritans and the Jews, because the Samaritans had, had adapted a kind of faulty version of the first five books of the Old Testament. It was part of the product of the mixing of, of their pagan religion influence and the Jewish influence that they had. And so they thought that the worship, the right worship of God should happen on this particular mountain, Mount Gerizim, whereas the Jews focused on Jerusalem. And so she, she see what she's doing? She's, she's protecting herself here from this from this difficult conversation. So here's this truth that I want us to see. We talked about a little, a little bit about it last week, is that covering up shame and guilt is exhausting. Covering up shame and guilt is exhausting, and we see it in this woman's life. I mean, just observe how powerful and how dominating he is. I mean, she's come at noon. It's the middle of the day, we read last week, and it was the sixth hour, which would have been 12 noon. She's alone. She's cut off from community. All of these other women in the town probably knew that she had five husbands, probably knew that the man that she's living with now is not her husband. And so to avoid that, she's making life much more difficult on herself. And here she's having to do the kind of conversational sort of gymnastics of keeping the conversation not too personal because Jesus has put his finger on something that is very, very painful. We see just in this woman's life the exhausting nature of shame. And she, she gives a kind of distraction tactic. And, and on some level, I think we all have experience playing this game. Things get uncomfortable, we distract. Or worse yet, we float through life never really talking about or putting ourselves in positions where anything really important gets dealt with. And I actually think that's probably the mode of, of many people. It's kind of a constant skimming, never digging. I think men in particular, it's just as my observation pastorally of people and, and of my own soul, is that women are better at actually facing reality. And one brother agrees with me. And men in particular are good at sort of keeping things at arm's distance. And, and there's something to this. We see this woman sort of diverting. She's covering it up. She's, she's wanting to, oh, what about, well, let's, let's talk about this worship controversy. 
Jesus is pressing in, which leads us to the second truth that I want us to see before we move on, is that conviction, realization, owning, conviction for sin is necessary. It's part of coming to the true understanding of what it means to need living water. In order to know what you really need, we need to understand the nature of our thirst. And so Jesus, you would think again that he might just press in to, yes, here's the gospel, here's abundant life, here's living water. But instead of going with the way the conversation was going, he takes it another direction and he actually takes it an uncomfortable direction where he is illuminating and highlighting her sin. Which means that I think conviction, understanding, us understanding our sin is necessary. Now don't don't misunderstand. Jesus is not part of the, the, the gotcha mob, you know, people that just want to just expose everybody. It's, it's, sort of, it's the spirit of our age, the, the cancel culture. That's not how Jesus works. He's, he's not digging through your, your tweets or your text messages or old photographs so that he can find some dirt on you from 2011 and put it on blast and, and embarrass you publicly. He already knows about all of it anyway. But in this private conversation, when it's just Jesus and this woman, he's, he's making her aware of just how needy she actually is. She doesn't just need something that will satisfy her soul. She needs something that will cover her sin. She needs a type of water that can cure and heal and forgive and redeem. And he loves her too much. And he loves us too much to just gloss over things. He puts his finger on the, on the sensitive spot, the most sensitive spot of her life. It, may, it reminds me of a, a couple weeks ago, I, I, my shoulder has been bothering me, and so after a, a while, it just, I, you know, a couple years, like most men, I finally decided to go to the doctor. <laughs> and, um, and the orthopedic doctor, in just a little exam, I explained to him what was going on, where the pain was, and just within seconds, he put his hands on me, and he made me do a little exercise. And, oh, yeah, there it is, Doc. There it is. That's where it hurts. He knew exactly where it is. He put his hands on me. He made me do something that I couldn't do, and it caused me pain. Yep, I know what you got. And here Jesus is like a good physician. He's actually putting his hands on the patient. He's putting his finger on the most sensitive spot. And he's doing that because he loves her. He doesn't want her to just add the gospel as a kind of accessory. He doesn't just want to add the gospel as mere abundant life without true repentance. And so he, he brings up our sin. And let's realize that our therapeutic culture is allergic to this type of, of engagement. It's allergic to conviction for personal sin. And we're prone to just keep the problem out here. I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, these husbands that she may have had, these five guys that she was married to, they may have all been duds. That's probably likely. She may have come from a terrible family. That might be true as well. She might have had some horrible thing done to her. Maybe so. But right now, it was her and Jesus, and the issue is her need, her sin, her failure, and it had to be dealt with. Conviction for sin is necessary. And yet, this leads us to the third truth. See this, 
see this. We have to see this. And yet, here's this beautiful, diverse excellency of the nature of Christ. He brings up her sin, but the third truth I want us to see is that Jesus is tender with sinners. He's so tender with this woman. He says, I just wish I could hear the tone in Jesus' voice. You're right. You're right. You, you, you don't have a husband. But the man that you're living with now is not your husband, but you've had five. A gentle tone we can read into that. Notice the tenderness that Jesus displays with her. He's not, he's not, although he could have, he's not clobbering her over the head with a verse from the law of Moses or Leviticus or Exodus or Deuteronomy about adultery or fornication from the law of Moses, which he could have done and been theologically correct. Bound up in his presence bound up in his question and bound up in his his ethos to that woman is this righteousness which she instantly senses and is convicted by. J.C. Ryle, a a famous English pastor theologian from the mid-1800s, he was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, he famously had a little commentary on all of the gospels. He wrote about this interaction that Jesus displayed courteous, listen to this, I love this, courteous and friendly aggression. That's how Jesus deals with, with this woman, and that's how Jesus deals with us. And I think this is just striking. Jesus is tender with sinners. In this age of, in this age of, of internet pugilism, where we're always fighting, of harshness publicly, where frustration and cynicism and sarcasm and impatience dominate. It's the spirit of our age. We need to take note of how Jesus dealt with worldly people, fallen people, sinful people. Listen to to a fuller quote from Ryle on this passage. This is from J.C. Ryle, written back in the mid to late 1800s. He says, this is beautiful. He's going to use this word gainsaying. We don't say that much in English today. It's an old English word that means just denier, somebody who denies. That's what gainsaying means. The infinite willingness of Christ to receive sinners is a golden truth which ought to be treasured up in our hearts and diligently impressed on others. The Lord Jesus is far more ready to hear than we are to pray and far more ready to give favors than we are to ask them. All day long he stretches out his hands to the disobedient and gainsaying. He has thoughts of pity and compassion towards the vilest of sinners, even when they have no thoughts toward him. He stands waiting to bestow mercy and grace on the worst and most unworthy if they will only cry to him. That's a great that's a great paragraph. That's, that'll make you a shadow box. J.C. Riles is right. He has thoughts of pity even when they don't have any thoughts towards him. Jesus is tender with sinners. Well, let's keep going. Now on to verse 21 through 26. Let's look, let's look at verses 21 and 22. Now there's a good bit going on in, in the second half of our passage here. So let's, let's look at it slowly and carefully. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour, here's another transition, okay? He's gone from 
living water to really exposing her sin. And now he's going to zoom back out. And he says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So he's responding to her sort of diversion, her theological debate. And he's saying, listen, this, 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 this argument is going to be obsolete sooner than later. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So let's pause there and just make sure we understand what's going on here in Jesus' response. He's saying the hour is coming. I think this is a reference to his work of redemption, which will be finalized on the cross. It's referring to the hour of his obedience, where he will lay down his life on the cross at the end of the gospel, where Jesus will, will give himself to be a substitute for the sin of all those that were trust in him, where the wrath of God will be poured out on Jesus on the cross. He will extinguish it. He will, he will, he will absorb it, and he will rise again in victory. That's what he's speaking about when he's saying the hour uh, is coming. And then he says that you worship what you do not know. So he's speaking you, meaning you Samaritans, Worship what you don't know. And what he's referring to there is that they're ignorant. They have a, a corrupted understanding of the Old Testament because of the mixture of these false religions with the law of Moses, and thus they're confused. And so he's saying, even though you desire to know the truth, you don't have the truth, and you're, you're, you're worshiping in a kind of ignorance. That's what the front, first part of verse 22 means. And then he's saying, we, meaning ethnic Jews who have the law, we worship what we no. Now, what he means by that is that the Old Testament was God's word, and even though Old Testament Jews were often very corrupted in their worship and often were an example of rebellion and idolatry, at least they had the truth and they knew what it was, even if they didn't always obey it. But Jesus is making the point here is that the Samaritans did not have the right revelation and the Jews did have the right revelation. And then he makes the note, he says that salvation is from the Jews. What does he mean by that? He's not saying that salvation is merely for the Jews, but it has been God's plan since the beginning of the Bible to create a people for himself. He does that in Genesis 12 through this man named Abraham. And he says to Abraham, this is really important. I want you to see this. I want you to see how the Bible fits together. And Jesus is picking up on this. God has created a people in the Old Testament through one man, Abraham, and he says to Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. Now, at that time in Genesis 12, all the way at the beginning of the Bible, we don't really know what that means yet, but it becomes clearer and clearer through the Bible until we see what it truly means is that through Abraham will come this seed which is Christ, who will be the one through which God will bless both Jew and Gentile, all who call upon his name. And so salvation comes from the Jews as a nation because Jesus is the offspring that has come from this people, this Old Testament people. That's what Jesus is saying there. In verse 23 then, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now let's pause there. Again, he says the hour is coming. He's speaking about 
his work on the cross, which will come. In fact, in some sense, it's here because he's there. And he's saying there's coming this, this soon moment when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. We'll pick up on that in just a moment because he repeats it in the next verse. But look at the end of verse 23. He says, for the Father, I love this word, is seeking such people to worship him. So this leads us to this, this fourth thing I want us to see is that God is pursuing a people for himself. That's the story of the whole Bible. That's, that's played out for us with this interaction with this woman at the well. She wasn't looking for him. She had no interest in Jesus. She was going out of her way to avoid shame. She was making life difficult on herself to avoid the social stigma of her state. And here, God, Jesus, comes after her. And that's the end of verse 23. Jesus is, is, is expanding this truth. It's this great truth of the Bible. Friends, we're not so much looking for Jesus. He comes looking for us. And God is pursuing a people for himself. He comes after us. He comes after Adam and Eve. They, they, they blow it in the garden and God comes for them. The world is a mess and God comes for Noah and he raises him up. People are wandering, false God-worshipping pagans in the desert, and he comes for Abraham. Israel is rebellious, and he raises up prophets, and he speaks to them. David is just a shepherd boy, and he comes for David and anoints him. And he comes for us most profoundly, and finally, through his son, he comes. He breaks into this world that he has created that has fallen, and he comes for us. That's why Luke, I think it's chapter 19, verse 10, or 10, verse 19, I don't know, I think it's Luke 19. Yes, Luke 19 says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is coming for you. He's the hound of heaven. And he never loses the scent. Dogs, you know, dogs can smell. I got a couple dogs. And we live behind a big block of land. And there's just woods out there. And sometimes we'll wake up and there will just be like a dead animal in our front yard. Where did that come from? They smelt it and they went and got it. You know, we're dead in our sins. And Jesus smells us and he comes for us and he makes us alive and he pursues us. This woman had nothing in her. This is such good news. Jesus pursues people. But yet, here's this beautiful paradox. He, he's, he's, a, he's seeking, he's looking, and the, remember, let's combine this with the whole message of John. He's, he's looking for whosoever will call upon him. So there's nothing between us and God except for our rebellion. He's seeking you. There's nothing between you. This, let this woman, if you have considered yourself, if you have written yourself out of the possibility of God ever rescuing you, friends, see this. This story is for you. You're not unredeemable. You're not too far gone. Your history is not too shameful. That's why Jesus, one of the reasons why God had this happen and had this written down so that you in your shame would seek God because he's seeking you. He's coming for his people. 
But he comes for his people with a purpose, and we see it in verse 24. God is spirit, and here he repeats himself. And those who worship him, that's the goal of him pursuing you. Not just so that we would be saved, and then we could just, you know, be aware of Jesus' work on the cross, and then just kind of be grumpy Christians for the rest of our life, that, you know, get angry at stuff. No, he, he does this. He seeks sinners, and all of us, friends, we, we are all on one level or another like this woman at the well. We're like her. And he comes, he seeks us, he, he, he gives us this living water, but he does it for a purpose so that we might worship him. We might worship him, which leads us to this fifth truth, is that we can only worship him if we are born again by the Spirit. So much, much thought has been given, much ink has been spilled over what Jesus means here in verse 24, which is a a repeat of what he says in verse 23, that we must worship him in spirit and truth. And I came to faith in a stream of the church that um, I think in earnestness and sincerity, I think just kind of adapted, approached this passage to mean that you just got to be really, really intense in the, you know, hour and a half or two hours. There's, it kind of needs to be this intensity with which you, during corporate worship, sing songs. Now, worship here is not about singing or even the gathering of the saints, as important as those things are. But worship here has to do with all of our lives, the declaring and the displaying of God's worthiness with all of our lives, responding to all that God is with all that we are. That's what worship is. He's wanting to make our lives a testimony of his grace. And how do we do that? We can only do that if we have been born again by his spirit. That's what it means to worship him in spirit. We can't approach him in the flesh. We can't approach him with effort. We can't approach him with works and say, is this acceptable? We must be made alive by the spirit which gives life, which is what Jesus was talking about Nicodemus with about in John chapter 3. So we come to him made alive, our sins forgiven, with a new heart, where once we were not able to know who God is, now we are able to know who God is. Whether you are like this woman at the well, saved later in your life, or whether you grew up as a good little church kid, everybody must be made alive in the Spirit. You can't worship God out of your own intellect, or out of your own cognition, or out of your own will. You must be born again. That's what it means to be, to worship in the Spirit. And now that you are worshiping in the Spirit, he says this second phrase, that you then worship him in spirit and truth. What does that mean? I think it leads us to our next sixth truth, is that we worship God through Christ and according to his word. So we, we worship him according to the new life that we have. We've been made alive we can now know God. We can now connect with him. We can now make our lives. We, we were centered on ourselves, and now we have a new heart, and our lives are centered on him. And of course, this is a struggle. This is the process of sanctification, but we're enabled to do this. And now he's given us direction. He's given us a way, and it's called the truth. And what is this truth? It's Christ and his word. And so we know how God has called us to live and to respond to him as we see Jesus and as we read the word that he's given his people, which we know of as the Bible. So friends, this is not some esoteric, sort of strange, 
sort of super spiritual intensity of kind of what we should do when we gather that, boy, we really have to sing hard. And no, no. What he means by worshiping in spirit and truth is that you need to be born again and you need to obey and follow Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And then, verse 25 and 26, the woman said to him, and we'll end with this, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, we're going to stop with verse 26 here and continue on into her, her, her progression of understanding of who Jesus is. But here, just I want you to note the contrast that here is this woman who was bound up with really a false understanding of who God was, a Samaritan, unclean, living in sin, not part of any sort of religious school or institution, contrasted with Nicodemus in chapter 3, and yet she is much further down the road of understanding who Jesus is in her one conversation with him than Nicodemus was. I know that Messiah is coming. Does she fully understand who Jesus is or even what Messiah means at this point? We don't know. But she says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then listen to verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now this is unique. Jesus often doesn't tell Jews who he is because he knows that they have this warped expectation of the Messiah that he will be some sort of political rescuer from Rome and he actually obscures who he is oftentimes to people. But here one-on-one -on -one with this Samaritan woman, he reveals himself to her because he senses this hunger coming out of her, which leads us to this final truth is that Jesus, this is wonderful, friends, Jesus delights, he delights in revealing himself to sinners like you and me. He's seeking us. The only way we can know him is by being born again and following Jesus. And he's kind to this woman who the world has been harsh to. Praise God. Well, that's enough for today. We'll pick back up in verse 27 next week. And now we're about to, after I pray, see a brother, a new member of this church be baptized. Another baptism this morning, praise God, where we see really the truths of this passage in one way or another uniquely displayed through one brother's testimony because the testimony of the Samaritan woman on some level is all of our testimony that we were lost, but Jesus came looking for us. Praise God for the God who seeks let me pray. Lord, as we, as we come now to celebrate this gospel that we see played out before us in this interaction with this woman, I pray that you would help us to afresh see the tenderness of Jesus, the sweetness of the gospel, the depth of our need, how conviction is necessary and how we can only come to you through your spirit, by Christ, through your word. Lord, come for us. If there's anyone in this room who does not know you or listening that does not know you, Lord, would you seek them? Would you give them a new heart? Would you give them living water? Would you put your finger on the, on the very deepest part of their need? Would you bring them to conviction? 
Would you wound them before you heal them? Would you make them whole? And Lord, for those of us that that need afresh to see how Jesus, how tender he is, Lord, do that again for us so that we might worship you more rightly in spirit and truth. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.